you want to think of pricing in three categories in my mind. The first is make sure you're getting paid for all the time that you're spending. And I don't even really care what your hourly rate is. It has to have three digits in it. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today's episode is fun. I have David C. Baker on. Now, David, if you don't know him, he is the consultant's consultant. He's worked with over 100 agencies. He wrote a book called The Business of Expertise. He runs a podcast called The Two Bobs, and he knows his stuff. And this one's fun because I've worked with David in the past, but I've made him come on the podcast to basically give advice to any freelancer, any agency owner, or anyone that's at a company and just wants to be heard on how they should approach business. So we talk about you know how you should think through being, hey, are you a decision maker or are you an order taker? He talks about if he was starting an agency today, what he would do around pricing, positioning, and what are good and healthy margins for a company that wants to be profitable or one that wants to be sold. And then at the very end, I make David give us some half-baked startup ideas that he has. This one, again, I've worked with him in the past. We literally paid him to get this advice. So I, I conned him into giving you some for free. So hope you enjoyed today's episode with David C. Baker. All right, David, uh, I'm so pumped to have you on the podcast. This has been a long time coming because I first heard about you from your book, The Business of Expertise, and then I read a lot of your content, and we had the privilege of working with you over this past summer. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now I just feel so much pressure. I've just got to sound smart. And this is good too. Like you want to interview me right after we're done working, not a couple of years later when you look back and say, God, that consultant did nothing for me. This, so this is a really good time to do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting on that ROI, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. As an agency owner, it's fun to hire. I mean, you're not an agency, you're a, a consultant, I guess you could say, but it was so fun to kind of be on the other side of the table. But I think the engagement, we left it being like, wow, we just got beat up by David for I don't know how many weeks. He called us names. And he charged us. <laughs> <laughs> but we loved it. We felt great. How, how do you think it went? <laughs> well, yeah, it, that is funny, isn't it? It's I really liked working with you all. And I'll tell you why. It's because I worked with you and, and Jonathan. You're both smart. You're really open to change. You have a perspective. You've been in the field. You're not. There's so many folks out there that are kind of in the growth hacker mentality. Here, I'm going to piss half your audience off right away. They're in this growth growth hacker mentality. They're kind of like these bros that got, they're looking for the secrets. And then you guys are not. You're serious business people that rely on data. So I enjoyed the process. That was fun. Well, I'll take the compliment. Now, we're pumped to talk to you again in three months when we can really execute on it. But it was a blast. So the first question I have for you, it's one of the articles, and it was also also in your book, where I read it, and it hit way too close to home. It actually kind of hurt my feelings, because it was something I prided myself on. Because as an employee, I was the guy that would stay late, work hard, I would throw hours at a problem. And I was a great order taker. And you had this article around, or this idea around decision maker, order taker, which one are you? Because that tells a lot about you as an employee or you as an agency, can you explain the difference between the idea of being a decision maker versus an order taker? 
Yeah. And I didn't really come to start thinking about that through that door directly. It was through another door. I remember working with, it was a PR firm in Chicago, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. And I kept talking about the appropriate stance as an expert firm and so on. And they kept pushing back against me. And all of a sudden, the light came on in my head and I just blurted it out and said, you're not in the service business. You're in the expertise business. We tend to divide the whole world into two things, services and products, which means we have to kind of throw expertise under service, but they don't fit very well. In the service business, the client is in charge. So if I need, I took my dry cleaning yesterday, first time in a year, (laughs) getting ready to go to a wedding to figure out people are going to see me, I need to dress up. And I was thinking, I didn't use them for a year and I didn't miss them at all. And I walked in, they treated me really well. If they hadn't treated me really well, I could have just gone across the street. There was another dry cleaner. That's the service business. And I'm in charge as the client and they're taking orders from me. You go to a restaurant, you're in charge. Now, an expertise business is the opposite, where the expert is in charge and the expert is asking lots of questions. And it's almost, actually it is malpractice to let the client self-diagnose. You want to know what the client thinks. You want to listen to the symptoms and so on. But in the end, you're going to agree on what those symptoms are. And you're going to say, no, that's not what's happening. It's this. The expert is in charge. And we somehow forget that. We throw ourselves into this service business. I'm not saying that you want to mistreat your clients at all. There's no advantage in that. You need to be respectful and kind and listen well. But you're not judged primarily because of service. You're judged primarily because the answer is right. It's Simon Cowell. He was the grouchy guy that was always giving these wannabe singers feedback. And the rest of the people on the panel, the other three, would just kind of pat the people on the back and encourage them. They were like coaches. And Simon sometimes would do that. And other times he was like, nope, you know what? That really, and he would say something that sounded kind of mean, And there was a little bit of drama associated with it, but you always knew that he was approaching it more from an expertise standpoint. And he would have to say some things sometimes that a client wouldn't want to hear. If you're in the service business, it's difficult for you to push back on what the client needs to hear. And so it's just a very different feeling. I mean, if we flip this around, you can think about what it's like to interview a client or a who's a decision maker or somebody who's just an order taker. An order taker thinks they are powerful, but they always have to check with somebody else first, or they're taking directions from their client. One of my, I'll say one other thing and then I'll shut up. One of my clients wrote a book about account management, and I forget the exact title, but it's something like, tell your clients exactly where to go. So the surface, that sounds mean, but what he's saying is that when clients come to you as an expert, you need to lead them to the right place. You're not just sitting there attentively with your pad out taking notes about what they want you to do. You're listening, you're diagnosing, and then you're solving something. So that's the big difference. I mean, if people are hiring you for your expertise, you need to be somewhat opinionated. Don't let them drive the strategy. That's why they're paying you the big bucks. If not, that opens up a whole can of problems. I kind of compare it to if you you like a girl. So for example, my wife, we were friends first and I was afraid to go down. There's a fork in the road where do you go down the friend zone where you're just going to be friends or could it go down another path? And I was like, crap, this is going into the friend zone category. I've got to derail this. I don't know if that's an applicable analogy. But. <laughs> Does she listen to this, by the way? I mean, you should have thought of that before you got went down this path. Does she listen to this podcast? Crap. Well, 
We'll edit this hard, definitely. We'll, we'll trim this. We'll trim <laughs> okay. this down. Okay. So question for you to go deep on this. I'm working with a client or it could be even somebody working with their boss. And you see yourself start to go down this path of decision maker or you come to a point in a meeting where, oh crap, I see this is happening. What are things I should be thinking through, whether it's tip or tips or tactics to make sure I stay in that category of thought leader or decision maker? Right. Well, the one thing we don't want to do is being a thought leader isn't so important that we want to make things up in order to change the conversation or move it in another direction. Having said that, there are times when you can actually pick on something to say and make a slightly bigger deal of it than you otherwise would because you need to step into the conversation and reestablish the balance of power. The most effective way to make this work well is to test for their willingness to let you lead even before they're a client. So if you're on the phone with a prospect and they say something you might slightly disagree with it. Well, don't let it pass. And of course, be generous about it and say, oh, I might have misunderstood you, but I was assuming when you kind of finish that, or maybe you do a little bit of research ahead of time and say, I don't know if I read this correctly, but when I look at this section of your website, my first thought was this, and I wonder if that's really serving you. So in other words, you have to have, it's not just having viable opinions, it's a willingness to express them as well. and. As soon as you sense that the client is not going to allow you to lead, then you have a problem on your hands. And it, it's not as if you are completely in charge. It really is a partnership with your clients. You can't pretend to know their world as well as they do and have all that deep industry knowledge, but they can't pretend to have all of the experience that you bring to the table and seeing things from the outside objectively. So that's what I would say to that. That's really well said. And to really be able to be confident as the decision maker, you need to know your stuff. And one thing after working with you that we've realized is you can't be everything to everybody. Know your niche, know your position, because if you nail that and it's something you deliver on, you'll feel confident in being this decision maker. So one thing that I see a lot of agencies struggle with, including our own, is positioning. What are some common mistakes you've seen with anyone that's creating an agency, and they're trying to hone in on what makes them special. What are some things to watch out for? Well, it's not as bad as it used to be. That's good, but it's still pretty bad. And I think maybe the most common mistake is to not realize that early positioning decisions are different from later positioning decisions. So unless you start with a whole set of clients that all fit in one category, which isn't very typical, Unless that's happening, what's more likely is you're grabbing work from lots of different places, maybe from a boss you used to have and some friends, maybe some advertising, some cold calling. You're just grabbing everything. And you kind of have to say yes a lot in order to have enough. It's not just about money. It's actually a license to learn as well. Your first clients can be not really victims, but they're, they're practice areas for you. You're, it's not delivering value to them. You're just not delivering as much value as you deliver later. So the mistake comes in continuing to just take everything that comes your way and not at some point, and it depends on you know where you start, but it could be anywhere from a year and a half to three and a half years, somewhere in there, you start to see that you are particularly effective with certain clients, certain types of clients, certain service offerings, whatever that is, whether it's horizontal or vertical, and that's when you start to say no. And so what got you to that first stage is saying a lot of yeses 
but you won't go to that second stage of deeper expertise and higher compensation until you start saying no to lots of things. This is different than it used to be. We live in a world where there's so much knowledge that there's just no way to be an expert in everything anymore. So you can be a very curious human, and you should be, that's just sort of going everywhere with no patterns. You just all these things that you go down all these rabbit holes and you wake up and realize, oh my goodness, I've been looking at this Google search that took me everywhere for two hours, right? But in your work life, you need to know a lot about something. And we, as developed civilizations, we develop this thirst for knowledge and we're comfortable going to lots of places. We'll go to a Facebook discussion group for this. We'll go to YouTube video for this. We'll go to Wikipedia for this. We're used to kind of cobbling all this together. If you want to be a valued and highly paid expert, you're going to have to narrow what you do. And the only way that's going to happen is to say no. Why is it that so many principals and other business owners are uncomfortable saying no? It's often because they either don't like the idea of wasting opportunity, this notion of saying, oh, I could make some money there, but I'm going to say no because it's not a perfect fit. Or they have this strange notion that they're suddenly going to wake up incompetent and not have enough opportunity. And they need to gain some long-term, long-view sort of confidence in their abilities and realize that, yeah, they're delivering value now, but they could deliver so much more value if they dove really deep somewhere. So that's kind of the concept behind it. And once you're able to say no to things when you know what you specialize in, it's actually very empowering because we've started to do that thanks to your help, like knowing what we say no to and what we say yes to. And what's exciting is what you specialize in and you find a client that fits in that, your confidence goes up significantly because you can deliver on it. Can you give some examples so people know, okay, specialize, focus, niche down. You kind of talk about the idea of vertical positioning or horizontal positioning. What are some ideas if someone's starting today, whether they're a freelancer or an agency, of ways they should be focusing their positioning. Sure. So you really have two broad options with some kind of minor offshoots, but you can capture almost all of it by just thinking about these two broad options. So the first one that's really easy to understand is vertical positioning. So that means you are focusing on a particular vertical niche that would, in the old days, we would have called an SIC code. Nowadays, it's more like an NAICS code. So I'm going to do Mark, I'm going to do digital marketing for industrial manufacturers. That's a vertical positioning. Or I'm going to do public relations for consumer tech. So those are vertical. And, and the advantage, the primary advantage of vertical is that it's very easy to find your clients, right? And there's some other advantages too. When your client go, leaves one job and they go to another job, they're usually going to go to another job in the same vertical, which means that it's quite likely that they'll take you with them. You'll retain the client that they were at, and you'll get a new client where they go to next. So that's vertical. Horizontal positioning is a little bit more complicated. It's actually what a lot of business owners prefer. That's This is their first choice in many cases, but there's a big stumbling block and they need to back away from it. But a horizontal position is defined either as a service offering, or some sort of demographic. So you might say, I'm going to do marketing for old people like David. So that's horizontal positioning. I'm going to help marketers that they might be selling mattresses or plumbing services or real estate, but I'm really going to help any, I'm going to help any business and any vertical address this particular demographic, or it could be Hispanic 
or it could be fast growing companies, that kind of thing. In terms of the service offering, you might have a very, a very small kind of horizontal thing that you do for clients, but you do it for all of them. So maybe you're doing investor relations and you're working with Fortune 5000. So you might have an extraction mining company, a transportation company, whatever. They're from all different verticals, but you're doing one very small, specific thing for them. That's also horizontal positioning or might be identity or something like that. It could be UX for apps. So the biggest reason why people drive are driven to the horizontal first is because it gives them lots of variety. They can touch lots of industries and so on. But where that becomes difficult is it's sometimes hard to find their clients. So let's say the horizontal positioning is we are doing a culture coaching for firms in transition. Well, how do you find firms in transition, right? So sometimes it's hard, but a lot of people start with horizontal because it provides so much more variety. They don't want to get stuck in one vertical like financial services or something. And then if they can find their clients, they stick with it. If they can't, then they sometimes will default back to vertical positioning. Yeah, and you also talked about you need to be able to buy a list of the ideal customer you have that's over 2,000 or 5,000. And if you can do that, then you're on to something. But I think this is something agencies get really nervous about is that positioning. But if you can do it right, it is a complete game changer. Okay, so... Isn't it, cra- isn't it crazy too that here they are nervous about positioning and that's what they do for their clients? <laughs> oh yeah, it's what the, the cobbler with no shoes. We were guilty of that as well until we worked with you. It was quite embarrassing actually. So... All right, we've got this figured out, David. We're going to be decision makers, not order takers. With our positioning, we're going to focus in. The third thing that I have a question for is, how do you close these clients? Because you had an article around leading with strategy over execution. And even how you framed it was interesting because I don't think people think like (laughs) that. Like, I'll build a website. I'll do ads for them. But you broke it down to these two distinct categories. Can you talk about the difference between strategy versus execution and why you should start with strategy? Sure. That I'll answer the second part first. There, it's hard to get any sort of price premium for execution. That's the biggest reason why you wouldn't want to start with that. You can get paid pretty well if you're doing execution for a client that you've already done the strategy for. And they, it's not like they can't find other people to do the execution, but they like working with you. You've already demonstrated that you get it. They sort of want one throat to choke. So they just like the the one-stop shopping that it provides. But one of the things that's difficult about the execution is that it's so replaceable and it's not all that valuable unless it's tied to strategy. I recently came up with a different way to think about this. I haven't tried it much in public, but it's starting to resonate with me. So pretend that your client, whatever business you're in, pretend that your client has an in-house department that does the kind of things that you used to do. So maybe it's not done well, whatever, it doesn't matter. They, so if you place digital ads for such and such, they have that same capability. They hire you though, not, not because they need all of these bodies and hands to do this work. They have that. They're hiring you to come up with a strategy that will inform the execution work that they are going to do on their own. That's the best definition of strategy. It's what comes out of your head without actually doing something. It's saying, this is how you would solve this problem. This is how you reach this market. These are the kind of price points. These are the best, this is the best frequency, the best channels. And we can do that for you, but this is the strategy. And if you start that way, then the relationship is so much better because you're not just a pair of hands that they're buying. 
the way I like to think of it is, so you, let's say you've got, you've got these two big rooms. One room is a strategy room. One room is the execution room. And you've got clients using you just for strategy, just for execution, and both. The first thing you'd want to do is to close off the outside door to the execution room. So every new client must come into the strategy room first. They don't have to go to the next room, but if they want to keep working with you after the strategy is in place, then they go through the connecting door into that execution room where you're spending a lot of time doing all the things that you've recommended and they have agreed to. But you don't let clients come into that execution room from the outside. They have to go through the strategy room first. Then what happens is slowly that dividing wall between the strategy room and the execution room moves so that there's an ever-increasing percentage of your work that's, that falls under the strategy umbrella and less as a percentage that falls under the execution umbrella. That's a natural evolution for a firm. It's, I'm not saying you shouldn't do execution. I'm just saying that all the execution should follow the strategy room and that your positioning should hinge on the strategy and not the execution. If you've got a great strategy, you can hire people to do things. If you tell them what to do, the execution will be just as good. It's the strategy where the differentiator is. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And it leads to better retention, better long-term relationships because they're not just hiring you for smash and grab job. They're hiring you for your expertise and for your mind. And if you can be in that category of the decision maker you have a long relationship with them. So that's so smart. Only get in with strategy, which I know it can be tempting to be like jump into execution, but it's just so much muddier, more complicated when you get into that realm. Yeah. And every once in a while, you'll have a great client who doesn't have the time to do strategy right out of the gate. They just need you to rescue them with a quick implementation project. And sometimes it's okay to do that, but you do it planting the seeds that, okay, we're going to rescue you here but this isn't the way we normally work. Normally, we do the strategy first. And so after we rescue you here, let's talk about how we can help you in a more patient, methodical way. And, and so because you wouldn't want to turn away every client that wouldn't want to go through a big strategy plan because sometimes they just don't have the time. And to put color on that, is that doing a growth plan? Is that doing a, an audit? Is that doing an assessment? Something that gives them a, a roadmap of sorts? Is that what we, we mean when we're saying leading with strategy? Yeah, exactly. And it, it should, it, now you can't, it's really hard to have a package strategy offering unless it's built on top of a positioning because every industry is very different. So, and you're not going to be able to standardize that. But once your positioning is tight, you're going to have a similar approach to doing an audit, a diagnostic, a roadmap, any of those words are great. And that also, one of the biggest benefits of that is you have a mechanism for not doing all sorts of thinking and giving it away for free in the proposal because you say, oh, uh, we've seen this situation a lot. I don't know exactly what the solution is. We'll have to figure that out. But we have a process we use that always leads to the right solution. And I can describe that process to you. We won't apply it until you've engaged us. We don't begin thinking about a situation until we're engaged. Once we do, this is the process we use. And it's a 10 or a 30 or a $50,000 process. Here's what it looks like. It also gives them something that's not amorphous, but it, it's something that they can grab off the shelf and they know kind of how long it takes and what it looks like and what they're going to get at the end. It's an easy kind of a gateway drug to really hooking the client on bigger stuff. 
I love it. All about getting them addicted. Great uh, metaphor. So we've almost got this figured out. Decision maker, good positioning, lead with strategy. Let's ask the big question. How should you price your services as an agency? Like, how should you think about that? Is it hourly? Is it value-based pricing? Is it project-based pricing? What do you recommend? I recommend high prices after a lot of thought. (laughs) Brilliant. I tried the other and I kind of prefer the high. I don't know why. No, it's pricing is something that I touch on a little bit. My podcast partner, Blair Inns of winwithoutpitching.com, he does a lot more on pricing and he actually has a really good book called Pricing Creativity. You can see it at pricingcreativity.com. But I think you want to think of pricing in three categories in my mind. The first is make sure you're getting paid for all the time that you're spending. And I don't even really care what your hourly rate is. It has to have three digits in it. And it probably needs to be poorly positioned. Generalist is somewhere in the 120 to 160. Uh, An expert firm is 160 or higher, up to 200, 300. So the first stage is just get paid for all the time you're spending. That's just a key. It's just a basic key. And if you don't get that under your belt first, it's really hard to take the next steps. The second step would be to get paid for all the time you're spending at a higher hourly rate, even though the client never knows what the hourly rate is. And The third stage would be to package price. So there's no connection to how much time it takes. It's just to do this and you can describe it, it costs this. You don't think about time, you've tested it. And that package pricing is where there's so much more opportunity to make money because you're not just burning time. If you're just charging for time, then there's this natural cap because time is not a renewable resource. There's only so much of it a day. But if you start to package price on the back of really tight positioning, you can do well. One of the things that Blair talks about a lot is that you ought to think of your pricing as a portfolio of different choices. So you might have 80% of your clients who are on some sort of hourly rate, even if they don't think hourly. And then you take bigger risks, bigger upside, bigger downside with the other 20% of your portfolio where you might say, listen, you know what? We're just going to We so believe in you as a client and in our ability to do this well. How about we tie a big chunk of this to actual results? So instead of charging you 100,000 for this, let's have a base of 40,000 and then let's charge you X amount per conversion. That's terrifying in a way because you, there are a lot of clients where you don't have enough control. You feel like you're giving them great advice. You're doing good work for them. The results aren't there, not because of any deficiency in what you're doing, but because they're just not taking the baton and doing their part. So that's where pricing tends to influence your new business process, because if you're going to do something like that, you're going to be a lot pickier at about what kind of client you're going to be willing to put on the roster. The better you are, the more new business is about you as the expert interviewing clients and not you, not them interviewing you. Because you have tasted competence, you've seen how your work has made a big difference with your clients, and you don't ever want to take a client on where you don't have a pretty significant confidence level that you're going to make a difference. If that exists, why not have some variable pricing in place? I don't pricing the client too much. I think that can be manipulative. And I think people on the receiving end of that can feel like it's not fair, like we're just trying to grab all the money that's around. So I I don't go that far, but I think package pricing tied to specific results with the right clients is a, it's a good way to think differently about pricing. 
Yeah, and I would say when we worked with you, that was honestly one of the biggest unlocks. It sounds so simple, but charge the right price for what you do and playing around that and even increasing it can have a significant impact. And it already has for us. I mean, honestly, that and the benchmarking exercise we did with you was a game changer for us. And that, that kind of leads to the next question. Seriously, any agency should work with you just for the benchmarking exercise. But just to kind of tease that a little bit, okay, I'm, I'm an agency, I've got these people, I've got revenue coming in, my biggest costs are my team, it's my people. What's a good margin for an agency? What should I think through? Because there's this constant ebb and flow of a lot of work, margins are good, but everyone's overworked. Then you hire and it's like life is getting a little bit better, but margins aren't as efficient. Like what's the right number I should be honing in on? Yeah, well, it's hard to answer that question without also saying, if we're talking about net margin, you have to be paying yourself as the principal fairly because what we don't want to do is look at a firm and say, oh, that's a really healthy margin without noticing that one of the ways they're achieving that margin is by just underpaying the principal of the firm, right? So what I'm going to say next assumes that the principal is paying himself or herself fairly. And after that, I just can't imagine any scenario where at least 20% isn't happening all the time. There may be some awful, like maybe last year or something during 2020, but normally 20%. But you don't find many firms who only achieve a 20% net profit. 30% is very common nowadays. And I'm talking about net profit. In terms of gross, that's a very different story and it doesn't matter all that much. The other thing to keep in mind of all the benchmarks, one of the most interesting ones to keep in mind, and this would only apply to an expert firm where there's a lot of human capital. And it only works in an environment like the U.S. where we have unburdened compensation numbers. So if when you add up what everybody makes, including the principal, that should not exceed 45% of all the fees that you're charging clients. So that's the unburdened amount. So that's no taxes, no bonus, bonuses, no benefits. If you add up what everybody makes, including the principal, without all those other three things, it shouldn't exceed 45% of the fee base. If you nail that, then everything else is usually going to fall into place. If that isn't achieved, it's not usually because the, the staff is overpaid. It's usually because there's a significant degree of underpricing the work or overservicing the client. Underpricing is not charging the client what it's really going to take to get the work done. And the other part of it would be when a client asks for something that wasn't included in the scope, you don't charge them extra. So you over-service the client. So underpricing and over-servicing. So those are the most important margins really that I would look for. Yeah, that 45% number has become our North Star that with our interim CFO, I told her that number and that's something we keep track of. But yeah, that's really good because a lot of agencies, am I doing good? How does this compare? And if you're hitting that number, then you're on to something special. All right. So I'm asked a hard question, kind of. What is the right size of an agency? Part one. Part two of the question, I want to sell my agency. What's the return going to be? And how should that even factor into my long-term goal of my agency and the size of it? And we could put the size of the agency into two categories or two buckets. One is premium boutique agency. I don't know. It's like under 20 people, 10 to 20 people charging a premium amount. Or like, David, why should I just try and go for the moon and create a 100, 200 person agency and let's do this thing? Like, what? help me out. What, what, what do I do? Yeah. Well, 
We live in a culture that's afflicted with some very significant judgment calls around size. We automatically think that not only bigger is better, but faster growth rates are better. You can see this in like the Inc. 5000 and so on, which are all really silly things to me. But the now I'll answer the question about size in a couple ways. From a statistical standpoint, small expert firms some of the, the least profitable firms are kind of in the 10 to 15 people range. It's really odd. Something happens there. People are usually more profitable below that and above that in terms of size. But I don't really look at the chart so much. When I think about the right size for a firm, I want to think about it in two ways. First, what do you want to be doing as a principal? That's, I think, the most important thing because there's an indirect relationship between size and the degree to which you're going to be doing or managing. Do you like being close to the work, close to the clients? Then a smaller firm makes sense. Are you more comfortable wanting to get away from the clients and the work and you want to lead and manage and plan and make decisions and track finances and all of that? If that's the case, then you're going to be way more comfortable running a bigger firm. You'll like it. And that's, I think, the primary thing that your decision should hinge on. But there's a part B to this, and it's kind of a smart ass answer, but the ideal size is slightly smaller than the amount of regular opportunity you have. In other words, you need to always have more opportunity than capacity because the gap between your capacity and opportunity is this delta that represents your ability to say no. If you have to say yes to all the opportunity that you get in order to fill your capacity, then you're going to find yourself taking on clients who are not a good fit but you have these butts in the seats and you don't want them to not be busy. So you say, yeah, this isn't a great client, but it's better than no client. I'll take them. So you have to give yourself that leverage to, and that courage to say no. So you have to keep asking yourself what the ideal size is because your opportunity is constantly going to change. Now, if I flip this and answer the question in terms of how big should I be in order to be able to sell my firm someday, that's a completely different answer because the bigger you are, as long as there's still good margins, the more likely you are to sell, the better the multiples and all of that. In the industry that you and I are in, and I'm sure this is different for different industries, but in our field, like the marketing field, consulting and so on, you don't have the big boys all that interested in buying you unless you hit 3 million net or 10 million gross in terms of fee base. And so sorry to jump in, 3 million net, meaning 3 million net profit per year, correct? Right, right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Everything changes above or below that. You will see some buyers dip below the 3 million to save 1.5 million, but it's rare. If you want to be making a lot of money in a transaction, you want to be a bigger firm. And I mean, obviously all the all the numbers need to be good, but size really does matter. I think you ought to run your firm as if you're going to sell it, no matter how big it is and whether or not you do sell it, because running it as if you'll sell it brings this amazing benefit, even if you never do, in that you're running it so that you don't have single points of failure with people. You have great systems. You know how to onboard clients and new employees. You are able to take time off. It's there's visibility, revenue visibility because of your marketing plan. One of my favorite books is written by a friend of mine. It's called Built to Sell by John Warlow. And that book is really on target because he says, if you're going to sell your firm, then plan on that from the very beginning, because even if you never sell it, it will be a much better journey for you as a business owner. 
That's really, I love that answer for multiple reasons. One, I got more out of it uh, than I realized. And so two, it makes me feel like I just tricked you into over-servicing me. So I out-consulted <laughs> the top yeah. consultant. But, um, <laughs> so that's really interesting. So let's go down the path of I'm below 3 million in profit. And I, I still wanted to sell. I'm not 1.5 million in profit. What is a potential multiple my, that I would get compared to someone who's over 3 million in profit, the potential multiple they could get? Right. Well, so I'll answer that. But just as important would also be the different terms that might apply to a sale. So even if the multiples are the same, you might, for a big firm or a small firm, you might have a much larger percentage of the cash from the sale at closing rather than in an earnout because it's way more likely that a larger firm is not going to experience some bump in the road. If you uh, multiples are a little bit tough to think about, in the past they were all very monolithic. It was always a four. Nowadays they go down to two and a half, up to about eleven and a half, depending on whether it's what's called a strategic purchase or not. The average multiple for the last about 95 firms that have sold in this space, both private and public, was 5.45, I believe, something like that. So five to six would be the typical multiple. The A firm that gets a multiple higher than that is either being purchased by somebody who's desperate for it, or it's in a very hot area that's new. Maybe it's something around voice activation, voice marketing, or maybe it's a particularly narrow view of UX, or maybe it's some unique trick in SEO, or there's something that's happened and the rest of the marketplace hasn't figured out yet, but you have, that will often trigger a higher multiple as well. All right. It's that easy. I just need to get the profit up a, a tad bit more and we'll be there uh, and maybe ch and change my specialty. Okay. So one thing that I really like about the content you put out, and it's literally how I heard about you, is you actually even have an article on this. And I, I really like it because when people think of content marketing, like, oh, I've got to focus on SEO, or I need to focus on making something that'll go viral and has all of this content, video, infographics attached to it. You take almost a completely different approach. Forget SEO. And you take the idea of let's make content where you put a stake in the ground and is opinionated. Like one article I actually shared with my email list, the headline was why no one wants to read your newsletter. And it was so dang good. But let's take a step back. When you think of content, how should somebody who's wanted to be a thought leader think about it as far as having an opinion and forcing a stake in the ground? It's almost impossible to talk about this without thinking again about positioning because your insight, your point of view, your perspective needs to flow from your positioning because you are now spending more time seeing things than other people are who are bouncing around from one thing to the next. So you're deep into something and seeing things that other people aren't seeing. I think SEO is useful. In fact, I consult with a lot of SEO firms. I just don't think that should drive the content strategy. And here's an admission that I've never used a keyword tool. I've never looked up SEO. I, I never see how my stuff is performing from an SEO standpoint. I mean, Google is changing their SEO algorithm about 180 times a year. Like, I'm really going to keep up with that. I'm just going to assume that Google is good enough at their job that if I write good stuff, they'll direct people to it. So that's a basic assumption. And, and so far, it's been true. I don't think you want to write something or do a video or whatever it is, whatever the format is, unless you're adding something to the conversation. So 
what is it that you are saying that hasn't already been said? So you're automatically going to move away from stupid listicle stuff or clickbait. You're going to give somebody something to think about. Don't worry about whether they agree with it or not. You don't want to be intentionally provocative, but it's okay to have a point of view. When somebody starts reading your stuff, it should register either because they're saying yes or they're saying, oh, I don't think so. Like it has to register. If it's just mad, then they're and they ignore it. That is not the goal. The goal is for them to either unsubscribe because they think you're so out to lunch or be so impressed with it that they forward it to a friend. You got to have a point of view, not a point of view just to have a point of view, but a point of view that flows from actual observation and, and saying how things should work. I don't know exactly psychologically why people struggle with this. I think maybe they're afraid that they're going to turn off a prospect or something. If, you, if I were to ask them about prospecting, they would describe it to me as such a fragile process where you can't say the wrong thing or you can't give an opinion that might offend somebody. And they, I don't think of it that way at all. I don't know, did, as a kid, uh, or if you have kids, have you ever taken a kid to the whack-a-mole game where something pops up and you smack it on the head? And that's how I think about marketing. I like when somebody expresses an interest in possibly communicating or working with you, smack it on the head. If it's real, it'll pop up again. It doesn't need to be treated with kid gloves. If you have a deep expertise, let's say that you are one of the best divorce lawyers in the state. It doesn't matter. Your onboarding process doesn't matter all that much. What you say in the early, the first conversation with the prospect doesn't matter that much. They know that you know what you're talking about. It's reflected in the fee and you've set the stage right away. If that person that I've just described is going to write an article, it better have a unique perspective. It better reflect the fact that this person knows what they're doing because they see things a little bit differently. And so when I wrote that article, it was just a cry to quit contributing to the crap on LinkedIn, especially. You go back to LinkedIn after three hours and there's all these red notification dots. And so such and such has published an article. You skim those things and you just feel like, man, I just wish I just wasted some time. I didn't learn anything. And I, I don't want that. I want people to really look forward to the weekly or the monthly thing they get from you and miss it if they don't get it and wonder what's wrong with you. That's kind of the idea. I love it. You talk about don't just give them news. Don't just give them generic content. Have insight, have an opinion, because you're right. It, it backs up to if you're this expertise, if you're going to be a decision maker, it has to be baked in, baked off the, of these insights. So that's a good one. All right. So I want to change it up a little bit. And the whole idea of this podcast was if I was starting today. And so I like doing a startup idea brainstorm. And you have probably seen more agencies than anybody else out there. And you've probably seen more businesses than a lot of people. So I'd love to know, what are some half-baked ideas you have? It could be agency-related. It could be totally different. But anything that comes... Well, we recorded an episode of our podcast today. And I, I said to Blair, I said, I could imagine a world where having everybody working in the same facility and not remote from home, I could see that as a distinct point of advantage in the future. Everybody's kind of rushing to work from home. And I feel a little ambivalent about it. I think every employer ought to be very flexible with the team. 
But I think that long term, some businesses are not going to do as well unless they're working from the same facility and rubbing shoulders and innovating and all that stuff. So anyway, that's kind of a crazy idea that I don't even know if it'll happen, but I've just been thinking about that a little bit. One business idea I've thought of and haven't researched it enough to know if it makes sense, but you have all these business owners who want to take, well, they want to get away from the office for more than a couple of weeks at a time. In Canada and Europe, leave is usually a month at a time. It's not that way in the US. It's one week or two weeks and we don't take a lot of time off. I've thought about what if you had a sabbatical stand-in slash consultant combined who would come to your firm for two months or three months and cover for you while you're on sabbatical. But while they're there, they're doing all kinds of consulting, looking at your service offerings, at your accounting, at your procedures for HR, all of that stuff. So that it was kind of a resident accounting, but they're covering two things. They're, they're covering your absence while they're also helping the firm. And I thought the best way to, to staff that would be principals who've retired from firms, from the same kinds of firms that they're now going to go bounce around. They'll have an RV. They'll go from one to the next. Maybe they're even staying at the principal's home. I don't know. It's a kind of a crazy idea that I've thought of. Last one. Hold on. We need to, we need to jump on that one because that idea is gold. And where do I sign up? And maybe they can like dog sit for you or cat sit for you oh, as well. Right, right. We, we get three <laughs> services in one. But every agency owner you talk to, myself included, is I've been doing this for X amount of years. It's a grind. I want to take a sabbatical. But you're terrified to give up the reins. If it's like, hey, we have a interim sabbatical CEO that'll run stuff. And by the way, when you come back, they have a full audit of your company. It's almost you're doing your company a service by taking a, a step away. That's genius. Let's get that URL and launch that ASAP. Okay. You'll be my first client. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've already talked with a few of my clients who are now, they've moved on and they're retired and they all want to do it. They, because they want to travel. They love this field. So anyway, so I'll give you one other crazy idea I've had, and this is especially silly, but you have all these old overweight men at home alone, either they're divorced or they're widowers or whatever, right? And you have all these fit people who are going to work in the office and they're leaving their pets there all day. Why don't we connect these two? Like, why don't we have these, these fat old men walking dogs for people? And it could be free, but they need the exercise and the dogs need the companionship. It's, that seems like a natural to me, but you know, nobody's thought of it. It must be a bad idea. It's the perfect matchmaker, right? It's, you know, what other two parties need to come together more than this? Again, yeah, you've hit it out <laughs> of the park. I, I, yeah, I think you could raise some serious VC money with that one. There's so many dogs and so many fat people in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is from personal experience. I, I could lose about 20 pounds probably. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to pitch you one idea. I was trying to think, what is the David Baker e-commerce company? Like taking your advice for agencies and consultants. So obviously we're an e-commerce site where we're selling something that's in the five digits. It has to be premium. And I know you have a workshop where if anybody has seen your workshop, it looks like you're building something for Blue Origin. It is quite impressive. So what we need to do is you make custom remote for it's for remote CEOs, you're making them essentially their home office executive desk. And so obviously, we don't lead with execution, we lead with strategy. So we do an in home consultation to understand their workflow, the square footage of their place, we sell them on the design and the vision. And then 
they have you build the desk. And obviously we charge them probably, you know, 50 to $90,000 for this amazing desk. It'll probably take six months to make and then we send it out to them. But yeah, that, that's my e-commerce idea for you. What do you think? I like it. It could even be combined with the sabbatical thing where I bring the desk, <laughs> install it, and I could even walk their dogs if I'm at that point too. This all works together. <laughs> Man, this will be a nice roll-up portfolio. This is really strong. Okay, David, uh, I cannot thank you enough for the time. This has been really fun. I like to end with one question I ask everybody, but what is the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? So many people have been so kind to me, but I would say maybe the most impactful category of things that people have done for me would be featuring me in either big podcasts or national publications where, so I've had my work now discussed in the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Newsweek, Inc. Magazine, USA Today. I don't have the list in front of me. None of those I was looking, oh, New York Times recently. I, I was not, I never looked for a single one of those. Every one of those came to me and said, hey, like the New York Times thing, hey, I'm writing an article on expertise. Could I interview you for this article? Oh my God. Yeah, of course. Right. And there wasn't anything in it for any of these people. They just reached out very kindly, even when nobody knew me. Uh, the, I remember the first one was in USA Today, and I was just so touched by that. I've tried to turn that around, and I've tried to f spot people that I think are really talented and need a big break and try to help feature them and help their career. There's somebody that I use quite regularly, and I've really tried to uh, push her in other areas, make her sort of famous, and it's really fun. That's just returning the favor because some people have done really amazing, impactful things for me that way. Well, you're welcome. I speak for the journal and the Times, and then obviously it's not <laughs> starting today. But um, <laughs> no, that's really cool. And it just kind of shows like you take a lot of time, put a lot of great content out there, it gets noticed, and then people want to share it. So now your content's been beyond helpful. I mean, even before we engaged, I, I got a lot of value out of it, but that's awesome. But David, where can we point people if they want to read your book, books, if they want to learn more about your offering or just get some of your content, where should they go? Sure. So they can sign up for the free weekly. It's usually on Sunday. Inside email, that's at davidcbaker.com. Written five books. The last one is at expertise.is, expertise.is. And if they want to hear the podcast, it's two bobs, the numeral two bobs.com. Thanks for having me on too. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah, of course. And the podcast is really good. I, I go through it almost surgical when I have a problem in the agency world because I know you've recorded some content around it with Blair. So it, it's been awesome. But yeah, thank you so much, David. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating 
generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of a hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Thank you.